You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey everybody, episode 213 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast going on for four years strong. And we're brought to you today by GameMat.eu for pre-painted resin train, STL files, and neoprene mats, and Panhandle3D.com for 3D printed terrain for your Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legions, 40K, Age of Sigmar, basically anything. They've got like hundreds of items. So I was just looking on their website again, and I'm like, hmm, I don't really have any modern buildings like for Crisis Protocol. And they've got a bunch of them, like diners and apartment buildings and office buildings and... Hmm, I might be making another purchase. And that's 10% off for both of those websites. It's podcast10 at panhandle3d.com, and it's event10 at gamemat.eu. So I just want to let you know that. And thank you to all of my loving, adoring Patreon patrons. I truly appreciate your support. And you guys are what I think about at night as I'm going to sleep. Not my children, not my wife. I'm like, Dang, I love Grendel. Man, I love Nate. Gosh, I love Kojo. Dude, I love Leroy. Wow, I love Mike. I just go through all of them and I'm just like, I, I just love all of them. So, my wife is jealous and we're we're getting a divorce. But, that's beside the point. So let's get on to the show. What are we talking about today? Well, we've got two longer topics. We have the Votan Conspiracy as our real talk. And we discuss, is this a conspiracy or is everybody just dumb? So let's let's discuss that when we get to it. And, oh, uh, we've got some breaking news. After Votan was just FAQ'd five days after its release... Games Workshop just released the FAQ for the upcoming Imperial Guard Codex that's out in a couple months, and they also released the HRUD FAQ for a codex for an army that does not yet exist. They say that codex will probably be out in 2027, so they're doing their FAQs quicker and quicker now. Anyway, that was a tangent. We also have a letter from Janice, and she writes that... uh, She's got several questions for me, asking me like a questionnaire, and she wanted like all my passwords for stuff, and I gave them to her, but I I have my suspicions. Anyway, what have I been up to? I played a fun narrative game of 40k with Just James this week at the game club. It was my all-grot army, literally, uh, killicans and grots and just just a bunch of grots, and uh, obviously runt herds and stuff like that, and I played against his... Uh, Dark Eldar, and obviously I was at a disadvantage because Grotz get no love whatsoever from Games Workshop. They've got no chapter tactics except for, I think, like an FAQ, so I knew it was an uphill battle. They don't even get clan culture or anything, and they don't even have any good stratagems, but we weren't playing with stratagems. We were playing a narrative game. We did random deployments, right? And what it looked like is we did a similar thing to when TJ and I played. He basically wanted to kill all of the units that I deployed in this center area. And then my other reinforcement people were coming in from the side and it was quite fun. It was very fun actually. And I lasted until the end of the fourth turn where 
he would have, it was the end of the third or end of the fourth, but either way, he was going to kill them on the fourth turn. I had my uh, Grot leader was the last person alive. And one thing that was pretty cool that I was able to do, he had a raider with Lilith and a bunch of witches in it. And they jumped up in order to like, well, they charged us with the raider. And I was able to retreat from the raider and then light up the raider. Well, I encircled it with all my units and then shot the raider to bits so that he could only get Lilith and two witches out out of all those witches. That was like my big pincer attack that was pretty epic. He was not expecting me to do that because, you know, Grots are not good in melee. And I mean, Killicon cans are actually decent, but um, he was not expecting me to surround his boat and then try to... Well, we basically killed, what, 8 out of 10 of his witches. So that was pretty cool because they just could not be deployed outside the vehicle. And uh, that was pretty awesome. Uh, Lilith is a real pain in the butt. Um, there's a couple things that were pretty big. I uh, was going to charge my Killicans into his Incubi. And I was like, so do they fight first like the rest of your army? And he's like, oh, no, the Incubi are immune to that. They don't fight first. I'm like, okay, cool. So then once I charged and I got in there, he remembered his rule where if they roll higher than my leadership, then they do fight first. <laughs> or rather, I fight last. So that really screwed me. He wiped out the whole unit of Killicans before I could even fight, which should not have happened had he remembered his rules. But whatever that, you know, it's the ebb and flow of battle and we're not being competitive anyway. So um, so he that was a big deal. And then Lilith not allowing I she had. She charged in and pretty much whiffed. Um, she didn't kill my runt herd, and she didn't kill the unit of Grotz he was with. And she like did some wounds, but she, she did pretty terrible. And we went to retreat, which could have won us the game. If we were able to retreat with these two units, we may have been able to hold off long enough for the, us to actually win the game. But he uh, he rolled, and uh, the witches have this thing where you got to roll to retreat, and both the times I rolled a one, so I couldn't retreat any of them, and they were tied down. So it was still a very fun game, though. I really enjoyed it, and um, I lost on the fourth turn, or at least I would have lost. We ended up calling it because um, it was just it's such a foregone conclusion that I didn't make him roll the, the dice to kill my character, you know? Also, in some exciting news, I finally published my short story anthology for Tales from the Brutal, and if you are a reader, if you like short stories like I do, if you have any passing interest in brutality whatsoever, please take a look at this. Um, it's vaguely like 15 bucks or something like that. Um, obviously, it's print on demand, so the costs are much higher. If I could make it cheaper, I definitely would have, but you know, it's not some huge publishing company that publishes 20,000 copies and then sells them for cheaper. These get printed as you order them. So that's that's a little bit different of a beast, but at least I don't, I'm not sitting on boxes and boxes of books at home, you know. But I'm very, very proud of it. It's been a huge learning experience over the last two years. You've heard me over the last two years discussing about writing stories and rewriting and editing. I have edited this book like six straight times either from my input or from my beta reader's input or editor's input or whatever, six straight times. So finally, I'm calling it done. And uh, I am very proud of it. I think you're going to find a lot of heartfelt stuff in it. You're going to find some scary stuff in it. I actually was playing around with all the different genres. So you've got your like typical dungeon crawl story. You've got a scary story. You actually have another scary story. You've got like a political intrigue story. You've got many, many twist stories. Um, 
you've got some escape stories, you've got, they're all very different. They're all very standalone. And, um, so I hope that you enjoy it. I hope that people like it. And, um, as long as you guys keep supporting my stuff, then that gives me the funds to keep making more of it. The photo, the stock photo images and all the artwork that I have to buy for the books, not this one, cause it was just the cover art I had to buy, but the, um, the rights to all this artwork and stuff for my books is very expensive. So, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So I'm happy that everybody keeps supporting my work so that I can keep producing more work. And now all of my focus is on brutal space. All of it. All of my creative focus is on brutal space. So, uh, and that's, that's majority of it's done. There's a ton of tweaking and editing to do, but I'm hoping to get that out by the end of the year. I would be so happy if I could get pretty much all of it done in October. That would be fantastic, but I don't know how possible that is, but definitely the end of the year is, is my, my due date for that. So, and then I've got my, uh, next regular brutality supplement coming out. So I am very happy that my season is over with, and I think we're going to go into the next segment. So thank you for listening to the Pimp Cron Warhammer podcast. Thank you to my Patreon patrons and GameMat.eu and Panhandle3D. Thank you all for listening. Let's get on to the next segment. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Hey, guess what time it is, kitties? It's time for the Tesseract Mailbox, and today we have a letter from Janice at pimpcron at gmail.com. Janice writes, hello, pimpcron. I heard you needed emails a few weeks, parentheses, months, back, and just got around to emailing you. I was going to ask you what you thought of the new LOV, Leagues of Votan, but then someone asked that last week. So let's do an icebreaker. You haven't been asked any of these random questions in a while. And what she means is uh, any random questions, not any of these random questions. I've not answered these random questions. What is your favorite color to paint on a model? Mine is Moot Green 100%. I have three armies, one 40K, one AOS, and one Kings of War, and they all feature Moot Green. I use Moot Green even when it isn't appropriate. <laughs> like what, on children's faces? Uh, <laughs> as a teeth whitener? Uh, when is it inappropriate that you use moot green? Um, definitely my favorite color. Hmm. I would have to say, and this is weird because I don't use it that often, but Thousand Suns Blue. I think that's what it's called. Um, it's like a very vibrant blue, and I love it. So I, I use that um, as a highlight for blues, and it just makes everything pop really good. And um, I don't know if this is just something that stuck in my head or not, but the first time I ever tried actually layering paints, and I was like, you know what? I had this uh, white king on a knight for um, uh, death. I forget what the army was called at the time. Probably Legions and Nagash. And uh, I decided to highlight the blue, like actively, not just wash it, but actually highlight it. And this was years and years ago. I don't know if I was doing the pod. I don't think I was doing the podcast at that time, but, and I just happened to use thousand suns blue to highlight it. And it popped. And I still have that model to this day. And I'm like, I just love, love, love that model. So that might've just stuck in my head, but it's a beautiful color. And moot green is too. I like moot green. It's a very good lime green color. 
So what is the next question? What is your all-time favorite model? I know it's a hard question. For me, Mortarion is the coolest model they have ever made. I don't play Death Guard, but my husband bought it for me, which I painted and have sitting on my desk at work. Took me weeks to paint, but it looks great. Mortarion is definitely a cool model. Um, that's a really hard one. You really can't go with small models for this, can you? Because... As cool as they may look, they're just small and they're one of many. You basically have to pick a big model. I don't really know the answer to that question because there's so many cool models. I think definitely one of my all-time favorites would be Glutos of Scorleon, which I painted. And partially I love it because of the paint job. And partially I love it just because of the vibe of that whole miniature. And um, I really, really like that miniature. I always have loved the Star Drake from uh, Stormcast as well, and partially that's because the paint job I did for it, I think, is one of my best paint jobs ever. And um, actually, Leroy Jenkins got that for me. And uh, so those two would probably be two of my all-time favorite models. I don't know that I have a favorite model. It's hard to even wrap your head around that, to be honest with you. So I think I'll go with those two. And uh, her last question is, finally, what's your stance on abortion? <laughs> ha! Just kidding. Clearly you're not a fan or you wouldn't have a dozen children. <laughs> Real question. What's a favorite childhood memory? I, it, it could, it actually says I could be anything, but I'm pretty sure she means it could be anything. For me, it was my summer at my uncle's farm. He raised horses and my parents... Thought it'd be a good experience for me to spend a summer there with him and my aunt. Best decision ever. I couldn't wait to go back there every summer and ended up spending my summers from 92 through 97 with them. So that's five, six years. Even worked there for money when I was old enough. It was the only way my parents would let me go instead of getting a job when I turned 14. So my uncle agreed to pay me. Those were the highlight of my childhood and now I work for the Department of Ag. Not quite horses, but close. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for a fun and lighthearted show, Janice. Hmm. I have lots of good childhood memories, honestly. I had a pretty darn good childhood. I'm trying to think a little bit of what you just said, kind of, is that my mother's parents, those that set of grandparents, lived uh, probably 15 miles from us when I was a kid, and they had this big forested, they owned like, Maybe six acres. Maybe it was ten. I don't think it was ten acres. It was like six acres. And it was in the middle of a field, but their entire lot was very wooded. So it was cleared out enough for their house, and then the rest of it all was forest. And uh, every weekend, my cousins, my two cousins, would come up from where they lived, and uh, they'd spend the weekend. And then I would also come down and spend the weekend, every weekend. And my brother at the time was pretty young, but sometimes he would come as well. And we built forts in the woods. We we all got dirt bikes. We rode our dirt bikes to the woods. It was awesome. We cleared out paths for the dirt bikes. And it was just, it was a really, really great time. And that went on for maybe three or four years um, before we ended up moving or they moved or whatever. But that was a really, really great childhood memory. We used to go camping. We all had our own tents and we went camping in their yard. And, and uh, it was just, man, it was a great time. And uh, ultimately, honestly, that grandfather, um, my grandfather, Jack, he I was very close to him and he was one of those really gruff people. He was kind of hard to deal with. Like, actually, my mom can be this way. Um, <laughs> very gruff, very terse, very to the point, very aggressive in their speech. 
but they're not bad people at all. And um, I have learned to deal with that type of person because my mom is can be that way. She's she's better than my grandfather was. But my grandfather, he would call you an idiot in a heartbeat. And whenever he called you an idiot, it's because you were in fact being an idiot. But he wouldn't sugarcoat it in in literally any aspect of it. So uh, I was very close to him. And another childhood memory of mine would be learning to play checkers from him. He had uh, the checkers program on the Atari and he had an Atari in his living room, he had an Atari in his game room, and he had an Atari in his garage. He also had a Super NES, a regular NES. He was, believe it or not, a grandfather gamer, believe it or not. And um, so Super NES at that time was, I think, the farthest that was out. I don't know if uh, N64 or anything was out at that point. But um, anyway, uh, we would we would play checkers on his... Atari, and uh, he would never let me win as a kid. He would beat the crap out of me. I may have said this on the podcast already. I don't know. He would beat the crap out of me every single time. And I was like, Pop-Pop, why don't you let me win sometime? I'm a child. And he's like, yeah, you'll never learn if you don't, if, you know, if I go easy on you. And sure enough, I did get better and better. And he would tell me where I messed up. He'd be like, oh, well, see, you should have, after he whooped my butt, he's like, oh, I remember when this was here and this was there, when you should have done this instead of that. He would he would help me out. But I did become really, really good at checkers, and uh, which is a, like a weird thing, right? Because he never played chess much. He liked checkers. So I used to beat all my friends all the time in checkers. I can whoop anybody in my family at checkers, which is a weird flex, isn't it? Because most people think checkers is a joke, um, and it kind of is compared to chess, but checkers is a completely different animal because you're so limited and you you all the pieces are equivalent value, and you're so limited in your movement and all that. But uh, learning to play checkers from him... And then uh, when he actually, he died when I was like 14, I think. And uh, they had sold their house and they were moving in with my parents and me. And he had he had cancer at the time. And towards the end of his life, in those last few months when I was a teenager, uh, we would play checkers because he didn't have much else to do. And, and the chemo and all that was getting to him. He was losing his memory and he wasn't, he wasn't, he was there, but he wasn't all there the way he used to be. He used to be real sharp. He was about philosophy and about you know logic and all that. And he wasn't so much when he uh, when he was in the later stages of that. So we would play checkers, and I would let him win because at that point, with me as a teenager, and he had trained me so well to be good at checkers, and then with him starting to fail. I had actually, at that point, surpassed him in checkers, but I wasn't going to beat my dying grandfather. Like, it's not, I'm not going to do that. So uh, he would get mad because I guess he would bait me and he would know when I was going easy on him or he'd at least suspect it. And he's like, you're not going easy on me, are you? And I'm like, oh, no, I, I didn't see that jump or whatever. And he's like, ah, whatever, don't go easy on me. And he, he'd get all mad, I guess, because it insulted his pride that I would go easy on him. But obviously, I was like, dude, I'm not just gonna, I'm not gonna stomp my dying grandfather. So uh, that is also a very bittersweet memory. Um, I still, up in my attic, have the old checkers set. It's just a box from Dollar General. It's one of those cheap checkers sets, but it's all beat up from the number. I mean, the hundreds of times that we played checkers together, and it is a nice memory. I um, every once in a while, when I'm in the attic, I see it and I tell the kids, "Oh, this is the one that I, this is the set I played checkers with your great grandfather when when he was." Uh, on his way out. So, not to sound somber or anything like that, but that is actually a really good memory 
of uh, my childhood. So those those two things, and they both revolve around him. It was his property that me and my cousins went to, and then me spending time with him and all that. So of all the grandparents that I've lost so far, he's definitely uh, probably the one that I miss the most. But good memories. So thank you very much for writing in, Janice. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, keep them coming, guys. Keep emailing me, messaging me on Facebook and all of that. And uh, sorry if it got somber or something like that, but it's, it's actually a good memory. It's not a sad memory. Anyway, let's get on to the next segment. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimp Cron. Welcome, everybody, to Real Talk with the Pimp Cron. And today we're diving into... The Conspiracy of the Leagues of Votan. Dun dun dun! So there has been a lot of talk about the Votan Codex, right? And a lot of people have a lot of stuff to say. And I wonder how much of this is actually valid and how much of this is actually dumb, okay? So if you are completely living under a rock, uh, the Leagues of Votan had some pretty spicy rules, some pretty, like, just broken rules, honestly, and some combinations that were just nasty. And Games Workshop, this is the first book since the beginning of 8th edition that Games Workshop only tested in-house. They did not have any of the ITC gang or the um, Frontline Gaming gang or any of them. They did not have any third-party testing on this book. So, in typical GW fashion, they don't do anything subtly. There's no subtle tweaking. It's the gas pedal is all the way to the floor, or they turn around and try to correct that by pressing the brake all the way to the floor. Games Workshop does not know. I used to have a friend like that. We took a trip to Philadelphia with him, which for us is like a four-hour ride, I think, three-hour ride, and it was terrifying. Because he would get all the way up on someone's butt before pressing the brake. So he would floor it, and then he would also slam on brakes. There was there was no in-between. It was either full throttle or screeching to a halt. And now he's the CEO of Games Workshop. No, he's not, but he could be. Because that's how they deal with everything. So within five days of the Leagues of Votan starter set coming out and the rulebook and all of that, then they immediately issued an FAQ nerfing quite a bit of the stuff in the book. Um, it really, I don't think it was a, a terrible nerf. I don't think that army is unplayable now. I don't think that army is complete trash or anything like that now. I do think they did some things that uh, needed to be done to tone down the book. They could have done some of them in different ways, but I'm not doing a codex review. This is not a codex review. I'm not even getting into the rules here, but even some of their fixes are a little misguided, I think, but but it's fine. Okay, it's totally fine. But that has caused a lot of backlash because a lot of people are claiming that there is a conspiracy behind the leagues of Votan and exactly why they had an FAQ ready so quickly, etc., etc. And a lot of this, I feel like, is misunderstanding the way businesses work. I think a lot of this is maybe making some assumptions on the conspiratorial level. And, I mean, who knows? Maybe there's some truth to it, because there's lots of conspiracies that actually came true in real life. I mean, you can talk about conspiracy nut jobs all you want, and even if 99% of them are not true... There are some pretty nasty things the CIA and other organizations have done. I'm not getting into all that either. But 
there some of the conspiracy theories are things that people gawked at and were like, oh, so stu- or I should say scoffed, scoffed at. And then like 30 years later, the CIA is like, oh, yeah, no, we totally did that. We totally chemically castrated people in Africa. Oh, 100 <laughs> percent. Like, they don't even care. They just like, yeah, we did it. Oh, well, you know, fire me, I think is what their attitude is. So I'm just saying not all conspiracy theories are necessarily wrong. They may have a kernel of truth or whatever, and this one may be just like them. Let's start with a post from someone that I found on Winehammer. So GW just released the fastest FAQ and balanced data slate in history, nerfing the leagues of Votan before their release is even complete. How were they able to do that so quickly? How were they able to playtest and refine all of that information in mere days? The answer is simple. They didn't. And then that's when you get the X-Files music. Anyway. They already had the nerfs prepared. They just were forced to release them early because of the actions of the community banning the Votan from tournaments. Their plan from the beginning was to nerf the Votan after the bulk sales went through. And completely separate from that person's complaint, here's a possible uh, explanation that someone else completely unrelated had. So there's two possible explanations for what happened with Votan. Either GW is totally incompetent at writing rules that they had no idea Votan would be strong from their own playtesting, so they rely on the internet whinge brigade for feedback. Or GW is so greedy they will gladly bait and switch their customers by releasing a codex cranked up to 11, then nerfing it as soon as the army boxes are sold out, but before anyone can even play a game with the new rules. Neither is very encouraging. Edit, all the Mensa members dropping by to leave laugh reacts and just tell me I'm wrong. Feel free to offer up a plausible alternative explanation. So to address the first person, he goes, how are these nerfs so readily available? Well, number one, let's let's say one thing. Games Workshop probably did have nerfs in mind they probably did have nerfs that they had written down they go you know what this might be too nasty let's see how it pans out and we might have to tone these down okay but if you're giving them the benefit of a doubt that's probably the way that worked because remember when they had the um, frontline gaming guys and third parties playtesting you might have had hundreds of people playtesting games workshop does not have hundreds of people playtesting they just don't so they might have had things where they thought it would be a problem, but it come to find out it definitely was and people complained. So they already pretty much had those ready, right? So there's no real conspiracy there. They already thought that those might be issues. When people point them out, they go, okay, Germany's banning uh, banning our armies and their tournaments and all that. Okay, let's just put these out sooner than later. Now, this guy also says that they are trying to liquidate all their inventory right sell all their boxes sell out blah 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 and then they make all their money and then they nerf it sometimes that does almost seem to be the case but i don't i still am in the camp of games workshop is just inept (laughs) like they're just dumb they they poorly manage things left and right i don't think this is nefarious Uh, to be honest with you i don't think they have the 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 guts or the maniacal planning to pull any of this off to be honest with you in the way that people are suggesting also he's talking about a starter set they didn't even finish the release so what you would do if you were really trying to 
you know, make the maximum profit is you would finish your release cycle. The starter set boxes for these armies always sell out. Like, like I can't think of the last starter set army, you know, like Sisters of Battle or the um, uh, Black uh, Black Templar. I almost want to call them Black Knights. Black Templar. All of those sell out always, 100% of the time. So to nerf the army immediately after just selling out of your starter box, that does not seem like a financially valid move. And I don't know how many other people were banning their armies from competitive play, but Germany probably does not make up the majority of their competitive play. Now, Germany may have very active scene. I don't know that. But I know that they are not the majority of their demographic when you include the U.S. and Canada and Australia and other European countries. It just, it just isn't. So unless everybody was coming together to ban that, then... I don't think that's really the case, right? And I've only heard of Germany banning it. There might have been other people, you know, rattling their sabers or whatever, but I haven't heard anybody officially banning it. So once again, I think that they would have let this drag out way longer in order to sell the rest of their models before nerfing it if they were going for straight cash, okay? Another thing that's interesting to me is that a lot of people don't realize when you're writing rules... I can, uh, if, okay, let's say I needed to do an FAQ for brutality, right? I would listen to the people and ha hear their complaints. And then in an afternoon, I could sit down. If you are, you don't realize if you've written a game system, it's like ingrained in you. You know the, uh, the balance of it. You know the flow of it. And balance is probably a bad word because that's loaded. But you know the flow of it. You know the nature of that game. So if you were the codex writer for Leagues of Otan, you probably know that army inside and out. So the minute that someone says, listen, you've got two hours, figure out some FAQs that will not cripple this army, but will tone it down. You would immediately go, oh, okay, well, I've already got things in mind that I was probably considering to be a bit spicy and come to find out, yeah, people are freaking out about it. So let's go ahead and make everybody happy immediately, blah, blah, blah. And that is, that can easily be done in a few hours. That's not something, you don't even need to play test it. They've already play tested it to whatever degree they have. And they already knew what was probably the issues. And then, you know, this is just text, right? You're not, you're not carving it into a slate with a chisel. You're literally opening up a word processor and you go, okay, uh, the auto hits are not counted as sixes or whatever. You can very easily edit that and then issue a little PDF that says, Hey, do this, replace this word with this word, yada, yada, yada. Like they always do. It's not some sort of, you're not like burning incense and making a sacrifice and beseeching the dice gods you're not doing all of that. So a lot of people think that it's like magic behind making a game. And a lot of it is way more clinical and scientific than you think it is it's just it's just logic and planning and if you know your rule set which come on the guy that the, the people i don't know if it's one guy or a couple people but whoever made this book know this book very well it would be very easy to change it so when he's like oh it's only been a few days oh how could they possibly do, do bruh, bruh i could read the codex anybody could read the codex that has that mind for balance or gameplay you could read that codex you could have given me a day a single day and i've never even looked at the codex i could read that codex 
and make some suggested nerfs. Would all of them be the perfect answer? Probably not, but it would be going in the right direction, which is what I think they're trying to do with the FAQs. And I'm not being a GW apologizer or um, a fanboy or anything like that. I'm totally not even interested in that argument. And I gotta tell you, I love a good conspiracy theory, okay? I, I just sink my teeth right into them. But I can also tell when it's a giant turd that I'm sinking my teeth into. It's it's pretty, pretty self-evident. And to me, this one, they would have left it go longer if they were really trying to pump up their sales. Or they would have, if they thought it would be a serious issue, they would have released everything sooner, like all at one time. And I just don't see them doing that. Once again, I've had some experience with GW staff. I've talked to Alan Merritt. Their whole design philosophy, time and time again, if you really pay attention to the FAQs and the way they design books, is that they kind of are just gamers. They're not some hyper-competitive anything. They play for fun. The Games Workshop designs these games to be played in the manner that probably the majority of Warhammer players play it. Not tournaments. Not, you know, hyper-competitive, not following the meta. The average Warhammer player probably just plays with his buddies, and they play casual games. And I feel like that's the way this is playtested. Of course, as I've said before, that is definitely not the way you want to playtest it. You have to balance everything with the cap competitives in mind in order to make sure that it's as l less exploitable as possible. So, they're going about it in incorrectly, I think, and having third-party competitive players playtest this would have been far better. But, for whatever reason, they didn't do it. And lastly, I'm going to read this one more comment. This is just ridiculous. I'm no lawyer, but couldn't this kind of thing fall under antitrust laws? Like, they created a book with extremely stacked rules, waited till everyone got their pre-orders in, then nerfed it hard before some people even received their stuff? Just seems kind of ridiculous to me regardless. That is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. An antitrust law. They are actively trying to... And once again, this is not me apologizing for them. They are actively trying to fix their ill-developed codex because everybody whined about it and now everybody's going to whine that they are trying to fix it <laughs> call alex jones in here we need a professional for uh, conspiracy theories we need to get him in here and tell us how the government doesn't want you to know this but the faqs are free you can take as many as you want he's got 3,000 faqs at home and there's nothing the government can do to stop him so in conclusion, guys, I appreciate the effort. I know that if you don't think about it very hard, then the conspiracy can seem real. But if this is a conspiracy, it's horribly executed. <laughs> so it's possible. I'll never say never. It is possible this is a conspiracy theory to make money. And they have completely botched this conspiracy, if that's the case. Because they are no longer going to be making as much money as they could have if they did not nerf it so soon. So, thank you to GameMat.eu for supporting the show, and my beautiful, sexy, good-smelling, totally doable Patreon patrons, and Panhandle3D.com. Thank you all for watching the show, or listening to the show. I'm stupid. Been doing this four years and don't realize that you're not watching me. Anyway, I'll see you next week.